Hello everyone. The reading this evening is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starting at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, if you've got your Bible open there, you've probably got a heading at the top of this passage, believers who have died or something like that. And that's what this bit is all about, believers who have died. And even as we've gone through this service so far, you might have noticed the theme of death coming up. And it's a difficult thing to talk about in our culture. It's not a very popular thing to talk about. We live in a health obsessed culture. And part of that is about delaying the effects of aging. We all do that every time we wear sun cream. But part of it is about delaying death itself, of course. The sense that it's not good to die is so strong that billions of pounds are spent every year uh, trying to delay that moment. And I'm all for that, by the way. I'm all for healthcare. So uh, obviously the COVID vaccine is, is part of this attempt to delay the moment of death. And I'm certainly up for that. The sooner the better. But there are out there more adventurous ways of postponing death, like knocking out aging genes and using nanobots to carry out life-preserving surgery. From time to time, you see interesting things in the news about something like cryonics. Cryonics or cryogenic freezing is where someone who has died is preserved in very cold temperatures, like 100 and minus, uh, sorry, at minus 196 degrees Celsius, extremely cold, in the hope that in the future, they might be able to be revived by future technology. And when you go onto the websites of the sorts of organizations that offer this, they're full of hope. They want to tell you that it's not just pie in the sky, there's a scientific basis behind this. They don't just freeze people, they use a process called vitrification where there's very little ice formed and so people are very carefully preserved. And in theory, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to be revived. But then when the website was talking about the scientific basis of it, it gave a little something away. So let me read the statement. It said, talking about cryonics as science, cryonics is an experiment in the most literal sense of the word. The question you have to ask yourself is this, would you rather be in the experimental group or the control group. The cryonics group has a chance, but the control group has none. They might as well have said, the cryonics group has hope. 
and anyone else has none. They've given away that underlying assumption of our scientific age that death is very much the end of you. There is no hope beyond the grave. In contrast to that, Paul speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit into that situation in what we're reading tonight and says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, what I find interesting about this is that the people of the ancient world that Paul was writing to, not, not the Thessalonian church, but the people the Thessalonian church would have been surrounded by, their prevailing culture, were very similar to us today. They weren't entirely without hope. They were caught between hope and hopelessness when it came to death. So most people in the UK today believe there is some kind of life after death. But underneath, most people are also very afraid of dying. They actually have no real hope. And it's the same in Paul's day. In Paul's day, people believed in an afterlife. They had so many stories about it, and often they called the afterlife by the name of, of their sort of god who was ruling over it in their thinking, Hades. That was Greek culture. The Romans had something similar. And other cultures that would have influenced the, the city of Thessalonica would have had similar stories about death. They weren't entirely without hope, but like people today, they were afraid of death. And so in that sense, they had no real hope. One of their poets said, hopes are for the living. The dead are without hope. And a letter found by archaeologists and dating a little bit later than Paul's letter says, I sorrowed and wept over your dear departed one as I wept over Didymus. But really, there is nothing one can do in the face of such things. So please comfort each other. Death is difficult for us to face, but it's not just difficult for us to face as individuals. It's difficult for us to face as families and community. When somebody's lost a loved one, some of the most difficult times are celebrations, like weddings and birthdays, because you want your loved one to be there and to share the celebration with you. But of course they can't be. They're not there anymore. They can't share the laughter and conversation. They can't hold your hands. Your eyes can't meet theirs and share that unspoken thought. And I know that this is very close to home for some of you watching this, and we share your sadness uh, in our thoughts now. But our desire not to be alone, to be together, highlights a huge gap in our culture's tenuous hope of life after death. People hope for something beyond the grave, but who's to say that that won't be a desperately lonely existence for the rest of time. Around 50 million people die each year. Out of all of those, will you meet your loved ones again? And will you be able to communicate with those others who have died? And if so, in what language? How do you know? And this is what it all boils down to you, what it all boils down to. How do you know? How do you know that you won't be conscious 
and completely alone after death forever. How do you know? Hope beyond the grave is obviously not hope if you're alone. And uh, there was a fascinating article on the BBC about cry cryonics in 2016 that pointed out that if cryonics patients are ever revived, think of the emotional problems of being revived hundreds of years from when you lived, not knowing a single person alive, and seeing a world that is beyond recognition. It's suggested that fellow cryonics patients might actually huddle together and share memories of the world they knew and try to make sense of their new world. That's bleak. There's no nice way to say it. That's not really hope, is it? The Christian hope, though, is very different. Paul says to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope because there is not only life beyond the grave, but there's going to be a reunion like you've never seen before. The Christian hope is a great reunion. Hands will be held again. Songs and laughter will be shared again. And God will personally host this reunion in the person of Jesus Christ, his human incarnation. And we will all be together there at this great reunion. So let's have a look at the text then. And just to give you some background, it seems as though the Thessalonian church had written to Paul with a question or maybe communicated that through Timothy. They were waiting for Christ to return and Christ hadn't returned yet. And in the meantime, some of their church had died. So they're worried and they ask Paul, what about those who have died? We wanted to share the celebration of Christ's return with them, but now they've died. Will it be like going to a wedding, a family wedding, where you wish they were there and they can't share it with you? They're gone. So in this letter, Paul, with God's inspiration, this is what God wants us to know, tells them, don't worry about those who have died. They'll be back. They won't miss out. And we'll all be together with Christ at this great reunion. So let's see that in our text. Look at verse 13, if you've got your Bibles there. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. They'll be back. They'll be back. Let me say three things about that. Firstly, do you remember how Paul describes death in those verses I've just read? We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And he says it again at the end of verse 15. Three times he calls death sleep. Now, loads of cultures call death sleep for obvious reasons, but it's a big part of the Christian faith that we call death sleep because one day we believe we will wake up. When Lazarus died, Jesus said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. You probably know that a cemetery is called a cemetery because it comes from a Greek word meaning a place where you sleep. A cemetery 
is a dormitory. So don't worry about cryonics, you'll be revived one day anyway. And some, some Christians take this as a reason not to be cremated, and I lean towards that view. But I know many Christians who have been cremated. And if God created the universe, including time and space, from literally nothing, he can certainly raise us from the dead, no matter whether we've been buried or cremated or if we're lost at sea or in the mountains or whatever. So let me say this, have confidence in God's power. If he says the dead are asleep and one day they will wake up, the dead will be raised, then he will do that. And nothing will stop it. The dead are asleep and they'll be back. That's the first thing. Secondly, we know it will happen again because it's happened before. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The New Testament is full of examples where believers who have died are said to be asleep. But there's one person whose death was never described as sleep. And that's Jesus. When it talks about Jesus' death, it always says he died. In fact, even in the next part of this letter in Thessalonians, Paul says, Christ died and we sleep. This is chapter 5, verse 10. Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive or dead, we may live together with him. Why is Christ never described as being asleep? Because God doesn't want us to have any doubt in our minds about the fact that Jesus really was dead and he really did come back to life. They'll be back because he came back. Don't forget that Paul wrote this letter during the lifetimes of many people who had seen the risen Jesus. And Paul himself had seen the risen Jesus, albeit in a slightly different way. What does our culture have to pin its hopes on in comparison? It's the difference between taking, oh, sorry, I've missed a few slides here. Let me just go through those. <laughs> there we go. Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So look, it's the difference between taking a medicine and being told it's worked before and taking one being told this medicine has never worked before. Your guess is as good as ours as to whether it works or not. We have the assurance that Christ rose from the dead and so will we. Which brings me on to the third thing. They'll be back. Will you? Verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Stop there. That's Paul's belief. And it's the belief of the people he's writing to. So let me talk to you if you don't share that belief. If you don't share that belief, then none of this hope that I'm talking about this evening can be yours. None of it. I'm one of these sad people who likes to know how everything works. And on one of the few times I've been on a yacht, I remember opening up the Velcro of my life jacket and uh, seeing how it worked underneath. And I was so impressed by how simple yet effective it is as a safety device. The way the gas cylinder inflates it on contact with water and yet normally 
It's small enough to move around freely. It is an absolute feat of engineering. But as the RNNI say, life jackets are useless unless worn. You've got to wear the thing. And if you listen to this sermon and do nothing, it will do nothing for you. Paul also says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Jesus will be coming back with the ones he is keeping safe. That's what it means when it says God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's a bit like being in a helicopter. If you're in the helicopter, you will arrive at the destination the helicopter arrives at. If you're not in the helicopter, you won't. If you're in Christ, you are being kept safe by him and you will arrive at his destination. And being in Christ goes hand in hand with believing that Jesus died and rose again. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again and subscribe to everything that goes along with that, then you're in Christ. You're safe. So if you're not sure where you stand, if you're not confident that you are safe in Christ, then listen to these words. Listen to Jesus's words. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For the Father's will is that every, everyone who looks to the Son, that is Jesus, and believes in him, shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus won't drive you away if you come to him. And as the old saying says, no one knows their time. So don't put it off until tomorrow or until you think it might be the week before you die to come to Christ, because you are only safe when you've come to him. It's quite simple. Just believe that Jesus is the answer. Believe that he died and rose again for you. Go straight to him in prayer and tell him that you believe that and then ask him to show you what he wants your life to become. Paul says they'll be back. And I hope that you'll be among them. Paul also says they won't miss out. This is verse 15. According to the Lord's word, this must have been something that Jesus said while he was on earth and it's been passed down to Paul. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have died first will be, so those who have died will be the first to join this reunion. And there are a couple of things in verse 15 that reassure us that nobody will miss out. Now last December, uh, Claire and I were playing with Joshua on the living room floor and uh, we heard the sound of an orchestra outside and it was a bit eerie because it was very loud. It was a bit like being close to an open air concert. But this was last December and there were no open air concerts, just in case you hadn't noticed. 
And it got louder and louder. And we didn't really know what was going on. And it was quite surreal, really. Uh, I thought, you know, people who listen to classical music aren't usually the sorts to turn it up to max with a big sound system and two subwoofers, but that's what it sounded like. And it got closer and closer, and then there were cars outside the house and voices and uh, a loud knock at the door. And you probably, know, you probably know where I'm going with this. It was the Rotary Club with their big Santa sled collecting money for charity. And let me tell you that all of the neighbours were out on their doorstep to see what was happening. You couldn't miss it. Jesus' return will be like that. You will not be able to miss it, whether you are awake or asleep, metaphorically, alive or dead. It's described as the coming of the Lord. And some of you will know that that's the Greek word parousia, which is kind of a technical term. It was used for two things. First of all, it was used for, you know, in those big Greek temples, it was used for when people believed the power of the God was coming down and filling the temple. So it was the presence of a deity. Perusia, the coming of the deity. And secondly, it was used when a king or an emperor or another dignitary was visiting a city and they would arrive and people would go out to meet them. They'd arrive with a huge amount of pomp and ceremony. You know, their guard, their soldiers marching, um, a big, big display. If you've seen uh, Disney's version of Aladdin, you know what that kind of thing looks like. And that's what Perusia means as well. So it's a deity coming in power and it's a king coming with all of his uh, entourage and army. And for Jesus, of course, it means both things. It's the powerful arrival of God with his armies of angels. You get the idea when it says, for the Lord himself. Uh, Lord simply means master, but also in it's the Greek translation of the divine name Yahweh in the Old Testament. So when you see the Lord, you think, ah, this would have meant something to the people, to particularly Jewish people reading it in the first century, because that's how they read the divine name when they were reading the Old Testament. For the Lord himself, in other words, God himself, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Now, I don't know whether that's literal or figurative. Don't know if there will actually be a trumpet. But the point is, nobody is going to miss it. It's an announcement powerful enough even to wake the dead. Now, you might have noticed that the dead are coming from two directions. Firstly, they're coming with Jesus, you'll notice, presumably down from heaven. And secondly, they're rising, presumably from the ground. And that's quite consistent with what the Bible tells us elsewhere about death. When a Christian dies, their spirit goes straight to be with Jesus. So the classic example, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, even though today... Presumably, his body was buried by the Roman soldiers who uh, put him to death. But that's only temporary while we wait for Christ's return to be reunited with our bodies and to live forever on a new earth. So even in the Old Testament, it clearly says that at the end of time, I'm reading Daniel 12 too, multitudes 
who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And that's inspired such paintings as this 1500s painting by Luca Signorelli, uh, a medieval paint, naked painting, sorry about that, of the dead coming to life, coming out of the dust of the earth, as Daniel says. So you could say Jesus brings the spirits back with him to be reunited with their bodies, which rise up from the ground. But the point Paul is making is that the dead will be the first to join the reunion. They won't miss out. They won't miss out. And neither will those of us who are alive, because we'll all be together. So we've seen they'll be back. They won't miss out. We'll all be together. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I said at the beginning that hope for life after death is not hope if that life after death means you'll be alone forever. A lonely hope is not hope. And it's important for us to remember that the question Paul is answering here is not a hypothetical question. The Thessalonians didn't say, what happens to people who have died? They said, what happens to our friends and family in the church who have died? And Paul's answer to this personal question is, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So he doesn't just say, don't worry, they'll be fine, they'll, with, they'll be with the Lord. He says, we will be with them. And I don't know how, but somehow it seems we will recognise one another on that day. Hands will be held again, people will laugh and sing again. What a great, great reunion. Now, I'm aware that as I say this, some of you will be feeling the personal loss of loved ones, friends and relatives who, as far as you know, were not in Christ. And so will not be part of that great reunion. And that is very sad. And it's not unnatural to feel the pain of that for as long as we live. But I also want to offer an answer to that situation, which might not take away the pain, but it helps us to understand how the celebration will still be a reunion. Uh, how, sorry, how the reunion will still be a celebration for us who have trusted in Christ. The answer actually comes from something I think Tim Keller said on Twitter recently, and it actually made me quite angry when I first read it. I couldn't find the exact quote, but he said something like this. You will not miss your loved ones when Christ returns because everything you loved about them will be present in a far more amazing way in Jesus. I was angry when I read that because I thought, so does that mean that individual people don't matter? As long as you can find the things that you like about them somewhere else, that's fine. Is that what Tim Keller is saying? But having thought about it some more, I think he's right. And so I learned firsthand that sometimes the right answer from the Bible will make us angry. 
Our comfort comes from the fact that we will meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's what Paul says. He does say we'll be together with our loved ones who have died in Christ, but our comfort is that we will be with, not them, the Lord forever. As any parent knows, when a child is born, everyone else in the family takes second place. The children do mean more to the parents than anyone else. So before Joshua was born, somebody said it would be a bit like falling in love all over again. And it was, and it is. And I know that even that example will be painful for some people watching this. But I think both the love that parents have for their children and the pain that others feel both really prove the same point. And that is that when Christ returns, we will experience a love we have never felt before. And all the pain of broken relationships and unfulfilled dreams in this life point us to a love that will never disappoint and will never come to an end. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It will be the best falling in love experience we have ever had. Francis Turretin is a, a theologian from the Reformation. He said, the saints will find in God whatever is necessary for them. For as he is infinite and the inexhaustible fountain of all blessings, he also has that with which he can satisfy the, necess the necessities and desires of all things. Excuse me. Another great theologian, Herman Bavinck says, God is the sum total of all perfections. Anything you can think of that is not just good, but perfect, God is that to an infinite degree and so much more. And the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here's a picture of them all putting it together. A photo <laughs> says God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He is the fountain of all being, for whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. At Oak Hill, we studied, you know, little phrases like the fountain of all being at great length. And it was actually amazingly heartwarming. For someone to be the fountain of all being, it means that the fact that we exist is down to the fact that they have given us existence. And they don't need someone else to give them existence because they already have it. They are the fountain. They are the source. God is the source of life. He is life itself, and we know what life is because God has given us life. Because God is life, it means when we're with him forever, we will be and feel more alive than we have ever felt before. No wonder Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our hope is so strong that death is nothing to the Christian. And I hope you really feel that. I hope you feel that death is nothing to you if you're a Christian. Let me finish with a couple of quotes from the Bible. These are words from the Old Testament book of Hosea. God says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, are your plagues? Where, O oh grave, is your destruction? That's life saying to death. Where are your plagues and where's your destruction? 
and a lot of you will recognize those words from a more familiar place. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read those words as we finish. We will not all sleep. That's that word again. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? And where, O oh death, is your sting? So let's pray and thank God for what he's done for us. Father in heaven, you are life itself and the source of all life. And we know what life is because you have given it to us. And Father, we thank you that at great cost to yourself, the Son, Jesus Christ, our sins have been taken away so that we can experience life forever in your presence and in the presence of all who believe in you. Thank you for that great reunion. Please may our hearts be warmed by that. And as we face death in our society around us every single day, particularly at the moment, may it just mean nothing to us. May we be able to rejoice over it and have enormous confidence in what you have done and what you will do. We ask this in Jesus' name and so that he will be glorified by the hope that people see in us and the hope that people ask about. May he be glorified. Amen.